This morning I'll be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, as you came to church this morning and you look around this sanctuary, you'll notice something. We've taken down all the Christmas decorations. And yesterday, if you're like me, you spent the better part of your Saturday taking down the Christmas decorations in your house. And yes, that means unraveling every single light from every single branch from the tree. And yes, it means the tree bites back. Because if you've got a real tree, it's now old and brittle and it just rips your hands to shreds. Now, if that's true for you as it is for me, you might be wondering this morning, why are we still singing Christmas songs? Did anybody forget to tell Paul and J. Marty that Christmas is over now? Well, they're epiphany songs. You see, today is Epiphany Sunday. That Sunday where we mark Epiphany, which was actually yesterday. It's the same every year. We celebrate the 12 days of Christmas, and then comes Epiphany. And this morning, you might be wondering, well, what is that? What is Epiphany? Well, Epiphany is this feast in the Christian church that's been celebrated since really the fourth century, where Christians gather to commemorate the visitation of the wise men visiting the Christ child. And yesterday, my family gathered around the table, and we told the story. We remembered what happened when the light of the star came to the wise men and the wise men sought out Jesus to worship him as king of kings. 
Now we celebrate Epiphany not out of tradition, and we tell this story this morning not simply because we feel like we have to, but because I believe that Epiphany actually preaches the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That in this story, this true story of the light of God appearing to the wise men and calling them, inviting them to worship Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords has something to teach you and I 2,000 years later about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, this is what I want you to know. I want you to know that Jesus Christ was born as king, and his kingdom knows no end. And through his kingdom, he will deliver the world from sin and death. So the first thing I want you to know is this. I want you to know the kingdom of Jesus Christ transcends the kingdoms of this world. I want you to look with me at Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, Matthew tells us in verse 1, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, if you've ever spent time reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll notice that there are lots of similarities and parallels, but there are also differences, each one telling the Gospel story of Jesus from a different vantage point. And of course, that's the case with the birth of Jesus. If you read the Gospel of Luke, Luke goes to great lengths with all kinds of detail and verses describing the birth of Jesus. Yet here in the Gospel of Matthew, we get just a few words. And it would be easy to pass these words up, not thinking they're important, but where Matthew gives us brevity, he also gives us important details. And he gives us something unique. Where Luke gives us a manger and shepherds, a choir of angels, Matthew simply says, well, Christ was born. But then he tells us something unique. He tells us about the wise men. And what stands out about the wise men, unlike the shepherds, is that the wise men were not there at the manger. And that might startle some of you. It means most of our manger things are, are wrong, right? It means, look, he, they weren't there. But don't be afraid. You can do what we did yesterday, really for the first time. We kept our wise men far away from the baby Jesus all Christmas. And then yesterday, we moved the shepherds out of the way, and we put the wise men front and center. Now, we don't know when they arrived, but we do know it was sometime after the birth of Jesus and somewhere in between that and when he was two years old. The light of the star inviting them to come and make their way all the way from the east. That's the other thing we learn about the wise men is that they came from the east, and that's significant. It's significant because it tells us something very important about who they were. They weren't Jewish. They weren't from Israel. They were from far-off kingdoms. They were Gentiles, foreigners, whom God sent a light to invite to come and worship Jesus as their king. In other words, they're the last people you would expect to come and worship Jesus as king of the Jews. You see, because we see something in God's manifestation, his appearance, his revelation of the star to the wise men, it's that his kingdom transcends the kingdoms of this world. 
From the very beginning of the Bible, we see the missionary heart of God, that salvation has come not only to his people Israel, but to the nations of the earth. And so Luke tells us that the birth of Jesus, angels came to shepherds, lowly, poor shepherds, last people you would expect to be there at the birth of a king. And now here in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells us that a star came to foreigners. The question is, who were these wise men? Now, the word wise men comes from the word magi. It's the way that our Bibles and probably your Bible translates it, wise men. It's in Greek, the word magoi, just literally magi. It's where we get the English word today, magician. So already what you need to know about the wise men is that contrary to popular opinion, they weren't kings. Now we sing We Three Kings, and that's how we, many of us know this story, but they weren't kings, they were magi. What does that mean? Well, they were astrologers. The word magi was the word that Persians would use to describe those who would interpret stars in order to predict the future. They were philosophers and astrologers. They were pagans dabbling in the occult. Again, the last people you would expect to come and worship Jesus as their king. Same kind of magi, we're told, in the book of Daniel, were there in Nebuchadnezzar's court, attempting to interpret the dreams that only Daniel could interpret. So there, these were astrologers attempting to predict the future, foreign philosophers who God sent a star to invite to come and worship Jesus. The other thing we learn about these magi we see in verse two. They come seeing this star to Jerusalem, and this is what they say. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, many have tried to understand this star and even point it and connect it to natural phenomenon that we have on record, like Halley's Comet or the constellation Pisces, which is the convergence of Jupiter and Saturn into one. But what we see here in the Gospel of Matthew is that these wise men saw this star as a supernatural event, so much so that they say this is his star. In other words, this is the star of Jesus. So again, these foreign pagan astrologers recognizing this star and its light pointing to Jesus as the king. Not only that, but notice what they say next. They have come to worship him. Foreigners from far off kingdoms coming to worship Jesus as their king because the kingdom of Jesus Christ transcends the kingdoms of this world. In many ways, we see this as a fulfillment of Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, the prophet says, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And listen to this. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. In the story of the Magi, we see the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
that it transcends the kingdoms of this world, that it has no earthly border or human administration, that it reigns sovereign and supreme and preeminent over every single kingdom of this world. Not only that, but the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus is transcendent and it has no time. It is eternal. It has existed before Jesus was born and even in his inauguration of the kingdom as his birth and up until its fulfillment when he comes again, the kingdom of Jesus Christ has no end. Again, the prophet Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 9, a passage that's familiar to many of us because we repeat it again and again during Christmas. The prophet says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. But listen, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And listen to this, of the increase of his government, that's his kingdom, and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The kingdom of Jesus Christ transcends the kingdoms of this world. It reigns supreme over every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. God, in his love and grace for the world, sent his son Jesus to be the king, not only of his people Israel, but to extend his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And his kingdom will have no end. What that means for us this morning is that as Christians, we are saints and citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And our primary allegiance is it to Jesus as our king. And you hear that and you say, but yeah, we live in a real world bound by time, bound by human government and human authority. And the kingdoms of this world so often feel so far off from the kingdom of Jesus. We could say the same thing even about our own country, that we live in this dissonant place between the fallen kingdoms of this world and all of their brokenness and sin and this transcendent kingdom of Jesus that is promised to us. But this is why Christmas is so good for us to hear again and again and again. Because Christmas gives us the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus is fully God and fully man that Jesus is both transcendent and he is imminent. What do I mean by that? When we say that he is transcendent, we're saying he is beyond, beyond all category, beyond all imagination. He transcends anything that you and I could possibly put him in a box to describe him. And yet, the incarnation means that he's imminent. In other words, he's near to us. He's given us his word that plainly describes who he is clearly so that you and I can perceive him and his grace and the gospel for us. More than that, the incarnation shows us that the kingdom of God took on flesh in the person of Jesus. 
Earthly kings assume their throne at some point in their life. King Charles is a good example of this. 75 years old, he became king. We're told here in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus was born king of the Jews. At his birth, he took the throne as a baby in the poverty of a manger because his kingdom not only transcends the kingdoms of this world, but it also has been brought near to us in his birth. And we see that in the Magi coming to worship him. Because the kingdom of God not only transcends the kingdoms of this world, but has been brought so near to you and to me that it has been brought to our very hearts. And in the Christ child, the kingdom of God was brought to a bunch of foreign magi, and they came to physically bow down before him. The question for you and for me is this, will we join them? Will you bow your knee to Jesus as your king? to recognize his authority, his reign and rule, not only over all things, but over your very heart. Because surely if the kingdom of Jesus Christ transcends the kingdoms of this world, then it transcends the deepest and darkest places of your heart. So the second thing I want you to know, not only is the kingdom of Jesus transcend the kingdoms of this world, but the kingdom of Jesus is a threat to the kingdoms of men. And if we're honest this morning, when we hear about God's authority and the authority of Jesus over all things, if we're honest, that threatens part of us because we want autonomy. We want to do our own thing. In fact, that's what sin ultimately is. The decision to choose our own way and our own kingship over ourselves and our lives rather than submit to Jesus as our king. It's treason because the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a threat to the kingdoms of men. And we see that in Herod. Look with me, verse three. When Herod the king heard that Jesus was born, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Now, why was Herod troubled? Well, this is Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was appointed as king of the Jews by the Roman Empire. And what's ironic about that is he wasn't even Jewish. So this is a poser who has come to power by an empire that is lording their authority over the Jewish people by the sword. And this posing king, king of the Jews, appointed by the Roman Empire, has just heard that the true king of the Jews has been born, the long-awaited Christ, the Messiah, the king. The real king is born. Now do you know why he was troubled? You see, he saw the birth of Jesus not as good news, not as freedom, not as the Messiah. No, he saw the birth of Jesus as a threat, a threat to his own kingship, his own authority, and his own power. And we know by this point, King Herod had already put even members of his own family to death in order to preserve his power and protect his throne. And so as he is threatened by the kingship and authority of Jesus at his birth, he will stop at nothing to protect and preserve his own power. 
So much so that we learn later in the Gospel of Matthew that he will have every son under the age of two put to death in order to seek out Jesus, not to worship him, but to kill him. You see, when we are threatened, we will find ourselves doing anything, even the most dark and heinous of things, in order to preserve the semblance of our own power. And you hear Herod here and all that he did, and you hear and say, that's so dark, that's so twisted, that's so destructive, that's so sinful. And the truth is, all of that is true. But are you and I really that different when we feel backed into a corner? We feel that we cannot trust the kingship and authority of Jesus or when we give into temptation and in those moments we are choosing our own authority rather than his. Very quickly we see the stark contrast between the kingdom of men and Herod and the kingdom of God in Jesus. I want you to look with me at what happens next. Herod is troubled by this in verse four. So he assembles all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. And he asks, well, where is the Christ? That is, where is the Messiah? Where is he going to be born? And they tell him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And they quote back to Herod, the prophecy that comes from Micah chapter five. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And there's two things I want you to see here. The first is that the birth of Jesus over and over and over again is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We've seen that throughout our series during Advent and Christmas. Long before he was born, it was foretold that he would be born in Bethlehem. But there's something else I want you to notice in what the scribes spoke back to Herod. As they searched the scriptures and they repeated prophecy back to him, they described the reign and rule of Jesus like this. For from you, Bethlehem, shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. How vast is the difference between the kingdoms of men and the kingdom of Jesus Christ? In Herod, we see what the kingdoms of men are capable of. Great tyranny, putting children to death in order to preserve their own power. Great atrocities, great sin, great destruction, all because the kingdoms of men are interested in one thing, the preservation of self. And yet here in Jesus, the true king, he was born not as a tyrant, but as a shepherd, one who had come to love and care and shepherd the people of his kingdom even to the point of laying his life down for them when they turn their back on him. And so the third and final thing I want you to know about the kingdom of Jesus this morning, I want you to know that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is our deliverance from the kingdom of darkness. The gospel of Matthew tells us that Herod tries to play a trick on the wise men, and he says, well, when you go and find them, 
Come back and tell me where he is, because I want to come and worship him. Of course, that was a bold-faced lie. We know this is true because, again, what happens later in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2, he has all of these children put to death in order to try to put Jesus to death. He doesn't want to worship him. He wants to worship himself. And so we see these magi, they're not tricked. They're not tricked because God comes to them a second time, this time in a dream. And he warns them, don't go back to Herod. Not only that, though, we're told that he sends an angel to Joseph. Look with me at verse 13. And when the magi had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And so Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt after Jesus was born. It's part of the Christmas story perhaps you're less familiar with. We're told in verse 14, and Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Now listen to this. They remained there until the death of Herod. And all of this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Once again, we see that every single detail of the birth and childhood of Jesus, indeed his entire life, was prophesied in the Old Testament. And Matthew is helping us connect these dots to see that God has been intentional with his kingdom and his chosen king from the very beginning. And so, even in Herod, an evil king trying to put Jesus to death, we see God's sovereign purposes. That Jesus would flee to Egypt, all to fulfill the prophecy of Hosea. Hosea 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. What I want you to see this morning is that this is not simply a fulfillment of prophecy. This is a fulfillment of redemptive history. See, in God, using an evil king to send his son to Egypt, he is connecting all of redemptive history in the person and work of Jesus. You see, as Jewish people would hear this story, they would hear Egypt and they would think of one thing. They would think of another evil king and another evil kingdom. Not Herod, but Pharaoh. Not Herod's evil reign and rule through the Roman Empire, but Pharaoh's reign and rule over the people of Israel as he lorded over them as the Egyptian ruler. And here we see that God sent his son back into Egypt. Why? Because God sent his son to go back into the kingdoms of this world that enslave us in order to set us free. And Jesus hiding out in Egypt and fulfilling the prophecy that out of Egypt, I will call my son. We see this picture of a rehearsal, an echo of all that God did to redeem his people out of slavery. That Jesus is now stepping back into that story and he's fulfilling it once and for all. That once more we find ourselves bound by an evil 
kingdom, a kingdom of darkness, far darker than the kingdom of Herod, the kingdom of Pharaoh. Apostle Paul tells us that it is the power and principalities of darkness, the kingdom of Satan that now rules and reigns over this world. And Jesus has come to set us free once and for all. We see this kind of language used by the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter one. We used it as our words of assurance this morning. I want you to listen to what Paul said. He said, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How has he done that? How has he delivered us from the kingdom of darkness? The Gospel of Matthew tells us that when the wise men finally found the child Jesus, they fell on their faces and they worshiped him. And they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, why these three gifts? Why gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Well, it's true they were costly. And it's a picture of their allegiance, their homage to recognize Jesus not only as the one true king, but as their king. But I believe they also offer these three gifts because of what they symbolize, what they mean, what they recognize in the person and work of Jesus. You see, in those days, you would offer gold to a new king at its coronation in order to recognize their sovereignty and rule and glory. Here are the wise men offering Jesus gold at his coronation. And we know that frankincense was used by the priests in the temple in order to offer sacrifice as a mediator between God and his people. But what about myrrh? Well, myrrh was used to embalm someone after they died. And it was also used as an antiseptic. And about 30 years later, after this moment, Jesus would be offered myrrh again. This is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Once more, Jesus would be offered myrrh, yet this time he did not take it. Once more, Jesus would be called the king of the Jews. Yet this time it was an insult and a charge in order to have him crucified. Once more, the kingdom of Jesus Christ would transcend the kingdoms of this world and using the evil of a worldly kingdom in order to put Jesus Christ to death on a cross to save the entire world from their sins. Once more, the kingdom of Jesus Christ would be threatened by the kingdoms of men. As Pilate washed his hands and said, give them Barabbas. Once more, the kingdom of Jesus Christ would come to deliver his people. 
from the kingdom of darkness. So the question for you and I this morning is this. Will you join the wise men and will you bend your knee? Will you bow down to Jesus as your king? Will you bow down to Jesus as the king of kings, the king who emptied himself by taking on the poverty of our flesh and being born in a manger? The king of kings who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, who died for his enemies, you and me, in order that we would be forgiven our sin and set free from the tyranny of the devil and the kingdom of darkness in this world. Will you bow your knee to the King of Kings who died and rose again to have victory over your sin and death, to establish his kingdom once and for all, who one day will come again to fulfill his kingdom forever when he comes to make all things new. This is Jesus. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he laid his life down for you so that his kingdom would rule and reign over your hearts and our world now and forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would show us more and more of your kingdom that we would pray the words that you, Jesus, taught us to pray that your kingdom would come to earth as it is in heaven. And that as we long and look for the day when one day you, King Jesus, will come again to make all things new, that we would see your kingdom break in here and now, just as it did when it came to you being born as a baby in a manger. May we now humble ourselves and worship you and bowing our knees to you as our King and the King of kings and Lord of lords, we pray, amen.